0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listen hear me, I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with writer, historian and broadcaster James Holland. I'm on a mission to help you unlock your creativity. I'm sharing my journey as a musician, actor and writer, as well as offering online content like guitar and songwriting tutorials and chat about creativity. I'm doing this because I know how important creativity is for mental health and I believe everyone has a creative spirit. I want to help you find yours. Join me at robertlaymusic.co.uk and on social media as Robert Lay Music. Thank you. Hi, James. How are you? I'm um, very well, thank you. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. Thank you for joining me today. Have I interrupted anything important to talk to you this afternoon?
1: No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm sat at my desk kind of writing away and, um, it, you know, it's, it's quite nice. having a little break, actually, to be perfectly honest.
0: Oh, cool. So when you're in a, a writing cycle, are you keeping office hours to do that?
1: Well, it depends, really. It depends on what the project is and whether it's fiction or whether it's non-fiction. I mean, I've been focusing on non-fiction recently, although I'm actually writing a novel at the moment. And... um no, I tend to kind of, I go pretty, pretty full out, actually. I'm, I work pretty long days and I just find particularly with the non-fiction where you're kind of marshalling so much information, it helps to get into a kind of zone, It sounds a bit pretentious, it's not meant to at all. But, but I just find out, you know, I'm usually at my desk by kind of 6.30 in the morning and I just basically work through till, you know, eight or nine o'clock. And obviously in that time, I'm taking the dog for a walk, I'm getting up, making a cup of coffee, you know, pausing, stretching, you know, all that kind of stuff. But but it's a it's a pretty long day. Um and I don't I don't really kind of get writer's block or anything, so I just I always just tend to kind of sort of power on through, really.
0: And is that partly the not having writer's block then? Would that partly be because certainly I guess in a non fiction project there's so much I would imagine, you tell me if I'm wrong, but there's so much research has gone into things before the point of writing that you you kind of know where you're headed with what you're talking about, what you're trying to get across.
1: Well I think I think that's true to a certain extent. I mean my my process with non fiction is always kind of is, is three stage. So the first stage is kind of marshalling information. So that might mean going off to interview people, it's going to archives, it's reading up secondary sources, it's kind of, you know, getting all your primary sources, um, you know, trips to America, Germany, wherever it might be. It's also walking on the ground. It's just getting the whole thing, just getting it very clear in your head what it is you're mm-hmm. writing about, what the subject is, what the big issues are, all that kind of stuff. Then the second phase is kind of getting one's ducks in a row. So that's that's you've got all the information, now you need to gather it and kind of put it all together and kind of work out what you're going to use and think about structure and all that kind of stuff. So with nonfiction books, I, I have a kind of a, a, a basic technique whereby I um, um, I do a chronology. So um, I, I have the, the dates on, on one side. And then on, you know, sort of tab it in in a couple of indents, uh, and then I've got the event, and I have kind of overall events. So just say, for example, you know, I've just done this book on Sicily, so I would have kind of you know all the all the major events that that happened in the Sicilian campaign and before, or anything that I think is significant will go in. Then, because I always use a very very well defined cast of real characters, I then have yeah. to add them in as well. So what you're doing is you're trying to find people to illustrate the general general events that you're describing so in case of you know i don't know let's just say uh um the american landings at Jella and the counterattack there you need to have characters who can represent the axis forces the italians and the germans you need to have americans you know you want a couple of rangers you know you want a ranger you want a guy from the first infantry division from the 45th infantry division and you know and you want a commander or two and a few other interesting people and so you're you're trying to find people that that have that shared experience so then on the chronology you would i would write in red what my americans are doing and in green what my Uh. italians are doing and purple what my what my germans are doing and then when i'm looking at it and i'm writing it i can see the events i've got to write about in this particular chapter and i can see where my personal stories are going to weave into that And, and that's how i do it and then once you've got all that sorted out, you've got your chronology, you've got your players, you've got all your research done, you've got everything at your fingertips. Then it's kind of press the go button and off you go. And, and I tend that's when I kind of tend to be writing in a kind of mad, furious flurry.
0: So will there happen where you'll you'll have a, a situation that you desperately you know you need to talk about and outline, but your characters haven't quite got the the information for you in the way that you need them? And then you have how does that work? Y-
1: y- yeah. So what you would always try and do is try and find characters to illustrate that. Uh, and obviously sometimes they just they just don't exist, you know, you just can't mm. find them. So generally speaking, that that event then gets, it might get mentioned, but it won't get mentioned in detail.
0: Particularly because I, I feel that you like to explore areas that haven't been as widely documented sometimes. So for example, I'm halfway through the Sicily book at the moment. It's not a story that I knew, despite being interested in the Second World War. Oh, well, thank you for reading it. Well, it's, it's great. I've learned a lot about the Mafia from the chapter that I was just on, which I wasn't particularly expecting. Um, yeah. And again, it's that stuff of what we know about the Mafia, but actually finding out how that all comes about and how they get into that position they're in in America and then how that plays into the Second World War. Just not a story I'd ever, ever considered before, actually. So unlocking those things seems to be something you're quite passionate about.
1: Yeah, well I think I think when, you know, when, when I'm reading up on a particular subject, what you realise is that there are certain strands that you kind of and also from walking the ground as well. There's certain things that, that in the tradition So let's just take Sicily for a classic example. You know, Sicily's got a kind of reputation for being a bit of a black mark for the Allies. They didn't do very well, it was all a bit stodgy, um, took a bit longer than they should have done. Too many Germans escaped at the end, blah blah blah. And although it's an absolutely sort of whopping, whopping victory for the Allies, it's sort of generally considered to be a bit of a black mark. But when you're when you're actually in Sicily, you know you're standing on some kind of mountain top town like Azorro or Troina or something like that. You think, crikey, you know, thirty eight days to take this island—that's that's going some. You know, that's that's pretty good going. And so you tend to sort of have a slightly sort of different view on 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 stuff. And I suppose. My point is, is that I don't come with any kind of, you know, when I'm, when I'm tackling a new subject, I don't come with any kind of preconceived ideas. I just, you know, I've just accrued a kind of body of, 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 knowledge now. And so I'm constantly asking myself questions and, and I don't really care what someone else has written. You know, what I'm interested in is, is kind of how it appeals to me and how it appears to me. So to me, the conditions in Sicily were absolutely nightmare. And that might explain why, you know, it took the 38 days and not 12, you know, but. It's kind of working these problems through and it's constantly asking yourself questions and, and, and going down little cul-de-sacs and little kind of routes of research that, that, you know, just need to be answered by an inquiry mind, I suppose, rather than, rather than anything else. And, you know, and then you, then you need to research those and you need to look into them. And in the case of the, of the mafia connection, you know, it, it was impossible to prove a hundred percent conclusively, a hundred percent that, you know, the Mafia were definitely, definitely sanctioned and involved. But I think the circumstantial evidence is is immense. And what's quite interesting about the way the Mafia stories has been told, it's always been told as a kind of footnote in general narrative histories, or the specific histories about the Mafia, but the people who are writing them don't understand military history or they don't understand how wars operate and how they work and stuff. So there's, um, you know, some people have dismissed the kind of, uh, the, the Mafia involvement as just pure myth-making. But my conclusion, when you kind of draw everything together and a whole new strand of information, which no one else, as far as I'm aware, has ever considered, it's pretty overwhelming that they were involved. I mean, one of them is is this whole strand by an OSS operative called Max Corvo, who was actually Sicilian. And uh, he was born in Sicily and, um, and emigrated to the United States. And he offered his services to 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 the OSS, which was the kind of forerunner of the CIA. It's probably, I suppose, roughly equivalent to the British SOE, you know, Special Operations Executive. And mm-hmm. and he said, you know, well, we should definitely go into, into, you know, when we go into Italy, you know, all my contacts, we should have this kind of, there's lots of people who want to overframe Mussolini and stuff, you know, I can kind of get in there. And the, the, the authorities said, said, yeah, okay, that sounds great. And, you know, the bosses of the OSS. They also said, you might want to consider talking to Lucky Lee Charno. And Max Corvo just went, absolutely no way, Jose. You know, you know, he's a bad guy. Um, you know, we lose all moral moral authority if we do that, you know, that's not the way to go. You know, I absolutely categorically refuse to have anything to do with with organised crime and, and, and with the um with the honest society. And, and the, his his bosses at the OSS go, Okay, fine, <laughs> you know, don't kind of push him on it. But then, as it gets closer towards the invasion of Sicily, it's absolutely clear that obstacles are being thrown in his path at every single turn. You know, first mm. of all, there's a kind of sort of cock up of him actually getting to North Africa in the first place. So he's delayed doing that. And then he does get there. No one actually tells him or his team when they're supposed to be um, embarking for Sicily. And when they do embark, they discover that, you know, they're too late. So they don't actually <laughs> get there with the invasion. Now, for someone who's supposed to be an intelligence officer, it seems absolutely incredible that he shouldn't know something as simple as when he's supposed to leave North Africa, you know, Berserta in Tunisia for, for the invasion. Mm. When he gets there, everyone just... No one's very interested. And if he does actually speak to anyone who's interested, they, they're kind of just basically trying to kind of sort of sweep him under the carpet. And eventually he says, well, I think I might go east into the kind of Eighth Army area um, where, uh, where you know, because he's grown up in, in Malili, which is on the east coast. Uh, and he says, you know, well, I've got some better contacts. And they go, yes, absolutely. What a great idea. Let us let me facilitate your um, a pass for you into the Eighth Army sector, the British sector. And that just happens just like that. And he's then kind of, sort of shuffled off. And it's absolutely clear to me that, you know, lots of people are just sort of trying to keep him out of the way, you know, because he's not really helping because they've already cut a deal with the, with the mafia.
0: And I think a lot of this stuff, it, and it, it sort of plays into, for me, the world we're living in at the moment. It's conspiracy theories always make things more complicated than they need to be. And it seems like often through history you think, what would I do? <laughs> What's the most obvious thing that's going to help me reach my objective? And in, perhaps in that situation, the mafia are there. They're powerful I don't care. I'm going to well, use them. Well, yeah. Some.
1: I mean, you know, I mean, there's an old adage, isn't it, about conspiracy theories that it's it, they're designed for kind of not very well-read people to make them feel intellectual. And I think there's actually a sort of a, a, a real kernel of truth in that. Um, I mean, with the mafia, I mean, they're there. Okay, they exist, and and large numbers of Sicilians have emigrated from Sicily to the United States in the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. There, there is absolutely no question, for example. The Lucky Luciano, who is a who's a Sicilian-born um, American gangster, who was in prison in 1943 in in, in New York, there is absolutely no question that he has links still to Sicily, uh, and there's also no question at all that he's helping the um, the the U.S. Navy's intelligence service service with their stuff of their sort of policing of New York Harbor. So it's really not a stretch at all to assume that he would have been approached about helping in Sicily. When you've got such a big undertaking as Operation Husker, which is the invasion, the Allied invasion of Sicily, you've got such a massive undertaking, uh, and where the stakes are so high and where it simply cannot afford to fail. I mean, why wouldn't you use the mafia if, if you, or certainly have conversations with them? I'm absolutely certain that they did. I just think. As it turned out, I don't suppose the the Mafia's involvement played a huge part, but I still think it's interesting that they were brought into the picture. And there's absolutely no question that once they were in the picture, they've kind of, you know, never let go again. And it's also interesting that the governor of Palermo, the Allied governor of Palermo, Palermo was a chap called Charles Paletti, who had been the sometime governor general of New York the previous year. Um, and his sidekick is Vito Genovese, who also happens to have been um number one gangster of, of Lucky China's business empire while he'd been in prison. So it's not it's not that it's a conspiracy theory, it's it's more that it would seem absurd if they weren't involved. I think that's more the point.
0: Yeah, it's it, it's obvious. And sometimes in history people do go for the obvious thing. One of the other things I enjoy with your writing or find interesting is this idea that the British part in the Second World War, um it wasn't all that successful we you know yeah they weren't (laughs) but actually they weren't so brilliant compared to the the losers and it's this sort of um thing that's come up i guess through that period of looking at it in the 60s and after the war when you've got to compare it to what's happening contemporary times was that britain was withdrawing from its empire and all the rest of it so it would have seemed difficult to to think of britain as this great superpower but the point you make particularly in um or in the West, is that Britain still was a superpower in 1939, and the Royal Navy was this massive thing and this massive big deal. And actually, as you mentioned with Sicily, a lot of what the Allies did was bloody hard. (laughs) The the, the obvious thing is it's really difficult to do what they did, and they did it. Yeah, I mean, I think Britain
1: had a pretty good war on the whole. I I think it, you know... The thing is about the narrative of the Second World War is most of it involves around two levels of war rather than three. And and, and war is basically understood to be fought on three levels. So that's a strategic operation and tactical. The strategic is obviously your overall war aims. The tactical is the cold face of war. That's the actual sort of fighting Mm. bit. Guys in their tanks, bomber crews, whatever, you know, the actual kinetic bit. Uh, and the operational level is what binds the two it's it's the kind of you know that's factories it's supplies it's kind of culture it's 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 a whole host of things which enable you to fight in the way that you want to fight and that has just been completely erased from the narrative of the second world war in the vast majority of books that have been written between the kind of you know as you say in the nineteen sixties up to kind of you know i don't know, sort of five ten years really and it just completely distorts things. So there's a whole lot of things going on. First of all, there is a lack of the operational level in the in the narrative, uh, and and secondly, there is far greater emphasis on the land campaign than there should be, because mm. even the biggest detractors would not have denied that the the Allied and particularly kind of you know British and American air power and uh, uh, naval power wasn't absolutely second to none by any by the standards of anyone else in the world by nineteen kind of you know by the middle stages of the Second World War. Um, and yet it doesn't give its due res- you know, it doesn't get its justice at all. I mean the Royal Navy was just absolutely superb. I mean the US Navy was superb too. Um Japanese Navy at the beginning of the war was very, very impressive as well. But but the Royal Navy was consistently incredibly good throughout the Second World War, whether it be supporting amphibious operations, whether it be overseeing evacuations, whether it be uh, providing uh fire support, whether it be engaging other other vessels, whether it be taking on the U-boats in the Atlantic and elsewhere. I mean, it was just supremely competent. Um, It was the senior service in the British Armed Forces and and senior service for a reason. And yet, because we can't go and visit the middle of the Atlantic, or or you're not going to sort of stand in the middle of the Mediterranean kind of thinking deep thoughts, it's not the same as sort of going to Omaha Beach or something on, on, on Normandy. It just doesn't get the credit that it should do. And so the narrative is just massively distorted on the Second World War. You don't have the operational level. You don't have enough uh, focus on air, land and sea. You've just got focus on land. And people have become unhealthily obsessed with, with German tactical chutzpah, which sort of masks all sorts of kind of terrible shortcomings in other areas of their, um, of their war effort.
0: It's almost like the Royal Navy is the base player of the military forces in the Second World War, in that you only notice them as in a band sense. You only notice them when they play the wrong note, but, like, when they're just getting the job done, it's fine, yeah, thank you. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, in terms of kind of sort of seamanship, navigation, um, tactical nous, uh, gunnery, all those kind of things, just, just the operational logistical level. I mean, the Royal Navy is just stupendously good. And, and you know, we just walk all over the Kriegsmarina, for example, or, or, or the, um, the Italian Navy.
0: Talking about writing again, would you have several projects on the go at the same time, or are you focused on one project at a time? How does that work for you?
1: Yeah, so right now I'm actually writing. i uh, writing some fiction, which is something I've been wanting to do for absolutely ages. It's a, it's, a, it's an idea that I've I've thought about years ago, but just haven't had, literally just haven't had the time to do it. But but actually, COVID is now enabled, you know to cut down my travelling, and so uh, mm. I'm not cruising around quite so much, and so therefore I could actually sp- allocate some time speculatively to kind of sort of write this to to work on this novel, um, but at the same time I'm writing that I am also researching the next nonfiction book, and indeed I'm off to Germany on Sunday as part of research for that. So, you know, um, and I need to put the novel to one side pretty soon and get on with the with the next nonfiction. Um, generally speaking, I don't have too many book projects on the go at, at one time. I tend mm-hmm. to kind of sort of do one and then kind of move on to the next one. But I'm always juggling an awful lot of plates because of you know what I do is you know is is beyond just writing.
0: Mm-hmm. And broadcasting, obviously, was that something that you was a plan, or is that something that's come through the?
1: No, right if, thing? I'm pretty, if I'm completely honest, none of this has really been a plan. I mean, I just, I, I didn't want to live in London anymore. Uh, I was working in publishing at the time. I didn't want to live in London. I just really couldn't think of anything that would get me to the countryside, other than writing. And at the time, I, I was thinking this: lots of young twenty-something girls were getting six-figure advances for writing, you know, lit novels. And I thought, well, God, you know, how hard can it be? You know, anyone can do it if they can do it. I, I must be able to do it. Of course, it was a very arrogant thought because it is incredibly hard writing a book, and particularly while you've got holding down a full time job. But I did write those novels. I mean, they were awful. Uh, they were kind of you know male chick Uh but they were absolutely rubbish. But you know, I, I sort of cut my teeth on it. You know, I kind of learned about the process of writing from writing a book on that scale. Um, and, and you know, were they
0: Second World War set as well? Out of interest, or was it a different?
1: No, not at all. No, they were sort of contemporary. They were they were just out and out chitlin'. I mean, they were awful. Um, um, they're long out of print, so you know, <laughs> I'm safe saying this, but but you know, it's um, but but it wasn't. I didn't get enough to kind of be able to give up the day job. Um, hmm. but I also kind of realized that kind of writing cynically wasn't the way forward. You you know, you have to write because you feel really strongly about it. That you know, you're sort of passionately. Involved in the sub in the story you're trying to tell, and excited about it, and all those sort of things, um, uh, and so I started writing a, a novel set to a backdrop of the Battle of Britain and, and just before and just after, um, and I really enjoyed doing it. I massively enjoyed re- doing the research as well. And I thought this is this is much better, and and I did sell it. It still wasn't enough to kind of give up the day job, but while I was researching that book, I also came across a story from the siege of malta i met and i by that stage i had an agent and i said to my agent well you know what do you think about me doing a, um, a non-fiction history of the siege of malta because i hadn't been one in ages and and he said well i think that's a really good idea you know go off and write a proposal so i i did that i did some research and interviewed some people and wrote a pretty chunky proposal and sold it and that's what enabled me to give up the day job and and you know move to the country permanently um and, you know and i've i've been incredibly lucky and I've been able to kind of sort of keep that ever since
0: and did you mention sorry that your day job was publishing at that point?
1: Yeah, I used to I used to work for I used to work in the PR department of, of in publishing of several I used to work for Random House and, and then Penguin. Um and they're now obviously combined and they're now Penguin Random House. But yeah, no, I did I did the PR for uh Anthony Beaver's Stalingrad. I did the first PR for, for Jamie Oliver when he first came on the scene. I I did all sorts of stuff. I worked with Tony Ben, um Jerry mm-hmm. Adams of all people. I mean, you know, it was quite interesting. I've I met some very interesting people. Um and I also met Michael Wood, who had, he was a he's a an amazing T V historian, amazing historian in his own right and been a bit of a sort of childhood hero of mine. I've always really loved history. i read history at university. Um and I always loved his T V programmes. I used to watch um you know, Search of the Trojan War and search of um uh, in search of um um the Dark Ages and all this kind of stuff. And um, and I did the PR on one of his books, and we became really good. We became good friends, and and uh, it was amazing. I mean, people would say never kind of meet your heroes, but that was absolutely mm. the opposite. was true in, in in Mike's case. And then in 2005, his own production company, which was called My Vision, um, got asked to do a make a film about V Day, the 60th anniversary of V Day. Of course, yeah. Um, and they said, oh, you know, would you be interested in in fronting this? Uh, and I said, you know, you better believe it. And uh, off I went. And that that's what gave me my kind of first taste of. Uh, of doing tv and and writing and presenting and so on and um then i did a whole host of programs for through through mike and mike and his wife rebecca's production company my vision um so you know it was just it's i don't know it's uh, just extreme good fortune really
0: well it's the thing that i find a lot of creatives say from talking to them that it's look and all the rest have been in the right place but it's also all this work that you've put in the background for the years beforehand so in your case it's studying and knowing the subject and then i would imagine it seems an obvious question but working in pr for a publishing company and knowing these authors can't have necessarily hurt when it came to selling your own book later
1: yeah i, I it, it didn't hurt i mean they were they didn't have enough influence to kind of sort of make any difference on whether i get published or not but but what i suppose working publishing what it did was it slightly sort of demystified the whole process you know if you're if you're coming fresh to publishing and and or to writing a book you know writing a book is a big undertaking whether it's a small one or whether it's a really chunky one and you know i think most people would just assume that they could never do that because it's it's such a big thing i mean how do you start how do you pace it how do you kind of work out what your chapters are and how do you work out how long it's going to be and all this kind of stuff but actually, like anything, you know, an awful lot of writing is, is technical and, and, you know, you have mm-hmm. to learn your craft. It's a bit like, you know, the concert pianist still has to kind of practice his arpeggios, you know, so you, you, you have to, you know, you, 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 everyone needs luck, but I do think you kind of make your luck. You have to sort of get yourself into a situation where those lucky happenstances can happen. Um, and, you know, in the case for me, you know, my writing career started because I got up every morning and wrote early before I went to work. And, you know, there's just, there aren't shortcuts really, unless you're, you know, super fortunate. I mean, the only way to do it is to just get off your ass and do it.
0: That's the message that comes through with so many people that I talk to. And one of the reasons I started this podcast was that thing of, because mainly I'm in the music, the sort of world of music and acting and stuff and interested in writing. And it's just that thing of, as you say, when you start, like you, you finish your drama degree or whatever, I'm going to be an actor. But, what now? And kind of the best way to find it out is just to talk to people. And pretty much universally, people say you got to do the thing. So if you're writing songs, you got to write a song every week. If you're yep. writing novels, you just got to sit and write. And I asked one writer, what percentage of the stuff that you've written or pitched never saw the light of day? And he said 90%. And yeah. it was this. This was a successful rock, and I was like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> but it is that thing of you just got to keep doing it. Like as you mentioned, uh, you know, a concert pianist or an athlete. If you're not training, you're not going to win the race when it comes along. I suppose.
1: Yeah, and I think you've just got to put in the hours. I mean, you know, it's you know, I'm I'm in a I'm in a good good position now where I've you know I'm, I'm doing quite a lot of telly, I suppose, and I've got book deals and commissions to do stuff, and you know, I did pop my own podcast and with, with, with Al Murray, the comedian. And, um, but all of that requires a lot of thought and research and, you know, time and effort and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it doesn't just sort of grow off trees, you know, it's, and it's taken, you know, I get, I did that, I did my multi book deal in 2002. So, you know, that book came out in 2003. That's sort of eighteen, seventeen, eighteen 17, 18 years ago. And it's taken me 17, 18 years to get to this this stage now i mean Mm. you know lots of people have overnight success and 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 good on them but you know for me it's just it's been a it's been a long old process it 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 really has i mean it's been great i have i've loved every minute of it but but i suppose what i'm saying is just there is for me there's been no shortcut at all you know it's just it's hard work
0: I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation at this point, but I wondered if I could ask if you might possibly consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it, and writing a review on your favorite podcast provider. Doing these wonderful things encourages the all powerful algorithms to push the podcast to new people. It's also helpful when I'm talking to potential future guests, as it shows that people are listening. Thank you. And it's interesting mentioning the podcast, um, which I'm a big fan of, but I guess there's that thing of the podcast is fairly fairly instant in a way. I don't know how far ahead you record them necessarily, but that can go out and people can be tweeting you or whatever and let you yeah. know what they think that morning. Yeah. Whereas a book project. So for example, Sicily, yeah. which is here, right? So this book, it's going to take me a while to read it. How, how much of your life does that book represent in terms of the research and the writing and then everything that goes along with selling the book afterwards and the PR and stuff?
1: Well, I started, you know, I started work on that. I mean, I started work on that years ago because I did a novel set in Sicily in the war, um, part of a series I was doing and, you know, I've walked the ground and I've read up on it and stuff. So, you know, my base knowledge on Sicily was pretty good, but, but that's why it gets easier as you go on because, you know, every, every project, every passing year, every person you talk to, every bit of research you do, it all adds up, you know, it all goes into the, into the pot and you just know more than than you did the previous year about this subject. So I'd already been researching Sicily, but not as a specific book project. I'd just, I'd been there, I'd walked the ground, I'd studied it, I'd looked into it. You know, I've done some battlefield tours with the British army over there, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the whole process of writing that book actually began years and years and years ago. In terms of sort of concentrated time, I mean, I started really properly researching it in the summer. Um, Started working at writing it on the second of February this year, I'd finished. You know, I got to the end by Easter. So that was okay. ten. That was a ten-week writing process, which is obviously is, is ludicrous and, and kind of incredibly <laughs> quick. Um, but that's you know, and everyone's different, and I, you know, that, I'm not saying that's how anyone should write their books. That's just how it works for me. I mean, I knew I had this deadline. I was running out of time. Uh, <laughs> it's always a bit of a bit of a rush because in terms of the deadline passing because. You know, I do do all these other things. So mm-hmm. time just gets eaten up. And suddenly you think, yikes, I've got to find the time to do all these, to, to write this book. And actually my wife said, look, you know, why why don't you just take yourself off for a, for a couple of weeks into a cottage and just, just write and don't answer the phone and just get your head down. And, and I did. I went down to Cornwall. It was, it was when those amazing storms were taking place at the beginning of February, first half of February. So I went down in first half of February. I had 50,000 words done by the time I came back. You know, so that was that's quite a lot but I mean you know in 14 days if you sort of take that if you sort of break that down yeah it's still only kind of 3,000 words a day or something you know 3,000 words a day a whole working day it's not it's not that much
0: and is there an element of your experience in that? So, like, you, as well as the the knowledge of Sicily, just your knowledge of writing these big projects—you've done several yeah. of them now.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Although, you know, it's always a massive slog when you're kind of sitting down to write, kind of sort of, you know, line one, chapter one. You always think, God, you know, how am I going to do this? Um, and how do I write a book? And how did I ever do it before? So there is—it's always quite daunting when you start. I think every, every single time, but you 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 get into a rhythm of it. I would say that the first half of the book always takes two thirds of the time, the writing Mm. time, or, or I'd go even further than that. I'd even go as far as to say that the first third takes two thirds of the right of the time, physical time. The last third, by that stage, you've kind of, you've just nailed it because you, you've got your structure, you've got into it, you've got past all the tricky stuff. Boom boom, you're on. I mean I have to say I thought Sicily was a really, really difficult book to write. It was one of the hardest ones I've done. Just didn't quite write itself in quite the way that some of the others have. But the last mm. part of it, I absolutely just flew. I mean, you know, I just I knew what I was doing. But marshaling that bit at the beginning when there's such a large character of um, cast of characters, particularly at the beginning of the book, was very tricky.
0: Do you have any desire or kind of ambition to, to look at a different period of history or even a different type of thing altogether? So I think, am I right in saying that pretty much everything you've either written or broadcast has been World War II, with the exception of the Cold War jets thing, which is obviously very closely related to the whole end of the Second World War. But is there an ambition to look at other points of history or not?
1: Uh, not at the moment, not really. I mean, I've got, I've got a First World War project, a 1918 project, sort of hovering in the background. Um, but I just feel there's so much to say about the Second World War still. You know, I, I don't feel done on that. I mean, you know, I'm doing... This book on the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, which I suppose is, a, if you're thinking of a one-line pitch, it's kind of sort of a band of brothers, but a British tank unit. And I'm doing that from sort of D-Day to V-Day, so same time frame. But, you know, hopefully that'll be very kind of elegiac, very uh, human drama heavy. Um, and I'm off to Germany on Sunday to kind of research that and walk the walk the ground effectively, see where they all were and stuff, get the landscape and the flavour of everything. Um then I've got to do third volume of, of War in the West, which I've done two, and I've got to finish that off. Um, I'm very keen to do a book on the air war in 1945. I think it's really, really interesting. absolute melting pot of kind of the bomber war, of close air support, of ME-262 jets, and, you know, ME-163 comets, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's a, an amazing, amazing period of, of human drama, and, of course, it includes that period of time and Würzburg and Dresden and so on. So that'd be interesting. There's a sort of bubbling way in the background. Is an idea to do a book on Guadalcanal, to do Kohima and Infal, to do the war of victory in Burma, you know, and, and <laughs> you know, there's a whole of the Pacific and the war in the Far East, kind of, <laughs> you know. So I don't know. I, I kind of feel there's still plenty to do, you know. I mean, that'll keep me going for another 10 years or so.
0: It's a fascinating thing, isn't it, that so much has been spoken about, filmed about, written about that period of history but there is always more <laughs> yeah. you know and there's always more and I've wondered as well people might say that it's quite a British obsession this sort of idea that we were still talking about the second world war and I think there's maybe an element of truth in that but where are you do you find that you've you've traveled around to research things presumably your books sell around the world as well is there a particular British interest in this or is that well, I think uh, so. no,
1: not necessarily. I mean, they're very into it in, in Holland. They're actually m- remarkably interested in Spain for some reason. Denmark mm. too and, and Belgium, less so in France for obvious reasons. Um, mm. they're, they're pretty interested in Germany now, to be perfectly honest. Um, there's a sort of weird sort of thing about publishing in Germany that the German publishers are just don't really, they will go there, but they don't really want to go there. Right. But but in kind of wider popular, uh, um, popular thinking, then you know th- there are lots of people who are very very interested in it. Um, you know, TV programs do very well over there uh, on the Second World War and stuff. Um, I think the point is, it's just it's just it's it's not it's not because you know Britain won. It's because although that is a part of it, obviously, I think it's it's because it was just such a massive conflict. And it's so interesting. It's also recent, and it's still within living memory. And I think people just kind of can't believe the totality of it, you know. And Mm. I think that it's it's, it's human drama that always sucks people in the first place. But, you know, there's a lot of wars that we've been involved with since. Morally, a little bit murky and stuff. And, you know, maybe you don't want to be kind of reminded too much about the sort of Mao Mao and things like that, Mao Mao Rebellion and so on. Um, End of Empire and so on. It wasn't kind of, you know, our most edifying moment. Whereas this is, was something where there was a sort of, you know, it was a, a sort of moral core to it. And it was a sort of moral crusade in a in a, in a way. Uh, mm. And you know, the Second World War affected the lives of every single man, woman, and child of all the major competent nations in a way that no other conflict ever has done. And and I think that is just endlessly fascinating. And the fact that you know you've got this sort of sudden emergence of of modernity and technology at a time uh, um, as well as huge number of people involved in it. I think that all makes it that all adds up to make it a very kind of fascinating subject for an awful lot of people. And also the tentacles Mm. of the Second World War are still being felt so widely.
0: Yeah, and particularly this year it's getting talked about an awful lot, isn't it? The whole blitz spirit idea of us I think you've talked about it on the podcast. There are comparisons to draw and there are the comparisons to point out how not terrible things are perhaps compared to how it might have been living yeah, through yeah, yeah. 1940 but it's but it's all interesting and our reaction to things is still kind of based on that folk memory isn't it from a lot of that stuff um talking of which it's it's an obvious point i guess but as you carry on and research and, and try and find those original voices i would imagine when you started out there was a lot of people you could go and talk to who were still around who you could interview and speak to sadly a lot of them are going all the time, yep. obviously. So does that make things more difficult when it comes to research in a project?
1: Uh, not, I suppose, to a, a bit. But actually, what's really interesting is that, even very early on, the, the, the person who was going to have the starring role in a book was the guy who had a very good memory, kept a wartime diary, but also kind of wrote up his memoirs for his family in the uh-huh. 1960s or something. You know, that's your kind of sort of dreamboat. And... Even when I was talking to people, kind of in the early noughties, you know, for an awful lot of people, they they still just didn't have the grasp of detail that I needed. Yeah. So you could ask some interesting things about, um, I don't know, funny incidents, awful incidents, what they thought of the food. I don't know, you know, small things like that. But but the granular detail was just it just gone in a lot of cases. Not always, but but in a lot of cases, and so. I am I'm, I'm using mu- much more I'm using um contemporary diaries and things now mm. uh, um which um, have that kind of immediacy which you don't get from kind of you know 60 70 70 80, even 80 years on on um which mm. is what we're dealing with now so actually and there's a, you know most it's 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 harder to find kind of access voices to be honest but but in terms of mm. kind of british voices american voices allied voices it's it's not a problem at all
0: well, are there those voices that are missing? Then I think I've, I've heard you mention, particularly talk about the Burma Project. The voices from the Indian Army aren't perhaps recorded. Yeah, quite yeah. The so same that's way. a classic
1: example where it really kind of really hurts because they just aren't there. And, and you know, I tried to get an oral history program going in the in the early '90s in India, and I just couldn't get any traction at all. You know, just couldn't get any interest. Um, and, and I think it's a large part of that is although they're very proud of, of what they did in the Second World War, you know, what followed was um independence and partition um and that is that kind of took came to dominate most soldiers experiences rather than what they had done in the second world war um and you know they're just just not there i mean you know the the indian government pakistan program they've just they've just done no program of oral histories you know so when when the time was ripe when people were ready to talk they just didn't record it and so it's just gone forever there are japanese accounts um but but again you know they're just not as many so it's it's yes from that point of view it is it is tricky
0: Mm. something I like to ask creatives um what's your definition of success what's a successful project
1: goodness me well you know you've got (laughs) the bread on the table haven't you um i mean for me you know success is having a good healthy life a happy life and and those around you all kind of sort of happy and, and healthy as well and i suppose you know I think the secret of life is to have as much fun as possible. Um, uh, and I think there's lots of checks and balances in that. Uh, you know, <laughs> you've got to work because you've got to eat, and otherwise you're not going to be very happy. Um, mm. I don't think riches are, are everything, but, you know, money's nice because it enables you to do what you want to do. But, but, but goodness me, you know, I've, I have a very rich life. You know, I'm, I'm no millionaire or anything, but, you know, I have a very rich life, and I'm, I'm able to do... You know, I have a work that I find unbelievably fulfilling. You know, I've got a lovely family. I live in a beautiful part of the world. You know, I, c- I couldn't really ask for more. You know, I've I've scored a hundred. Uh, I've flown in a Spitfire. You know, those are two big things I wanted to tick off my list. You know, so you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy to be perfectly honest. Um, but any projects, I mean, you know, you want it to you want it to do well, don't you? I mean, from a book point of view, you want it to earn out of the advance that you've g- given. Up front, you want the publisher to be happy, you want it to sell copies, and you want it to enable you to do the next thing. So, um, it's a hard one, but 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 I hope you don't mind me kind of sort of slightly turning that around.
0: <laughs> no, that's fine. That's that's you know, it's a, it's a, it's very interesting to sort of look at that, um, you know. As a musician or whatever it is, you're it's trying to connect with people. I'm trying to get into the mindset of achievement versus success, because success seems a very, very fluid thing. But you can decide for yourself what an achievement is. So finishing a project is an achievement, and whatever happens to it afterwards is something perhaps a little bit more out of your control. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I suppose with the Second World War, you know, I feel quite strongly about this thesis, my thesis of the Second World War. You know, obviously, I think I'm right Uh, and I think other people have been wrong. So, you know, the more I can sort of spread that word and get that uh, narrative Mm. changed, then, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm, you know, I would say that that is a sign of success as well. You know, that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, you know, you want to achieve what you set out to do, don't you? So, Mm. You know, and I think I think you know, life fulfillment is really important. I think you know, you've got to be challenged. You want to keep using your brain. You want to keep learning. You want to keep doing different things. You want to see something of the world. You want to meet people. You know, all those all those things. And you know, my my, my job, my career enables me to do all those things. So you know, um, and I suppose the ultimate goal is always to kind of you know be able to live comfortably enough without having to kind of sort of you know uh, kind of sort of burn a candle at both ends um you know operating at a slightly lesser pace would be good um not least because there's lots of things i want to do in my life which don't involve making money you know i'd really like to build a barn i'd really like to kind of you know learn to speak german fluently you know i'd like to there's this stuff i'd like to do and learn how to do and you know but you know i'm pretty content i'm uh, you know i'm incredibly fortunate to be honest
0: on the inside of that, though, because your passion for the history is something that you work on, it's your job as well, are there times when it's hard to just enjoy your enjoyment of the history because it's a job as well? Are you able to separate them in that sense? No, I don't
1: think of it, I don't think of it like that. No, I don't. I get I get really, really infused by a new project. I mean, the one I'm doing at the moment, I'm really excited about because the material is so good and, and it's just fascinating. And, you know, I love that kind of, I love the kind of detective work of research. I really, really enjoy that. And I love the kind of, you know, I like the process of being at home and, and writing as well. So no, I, I, I don't know. It's um. no, I, I I don't. I never I never wake up and think, oh, God, I got to work. I mean, there's days where I'm doing TV work. And you know, you're a talking head. And you know, you've got to be interviewed all day, and absolutely grilled. And you know, it's going to be incredibly exhausting. And that's all a bit of a pain. Um, but you know, listen, I mean, most people, bite my right arm off to do that so you know you have to kind of constantly pinch yourself and remind yourself that you know there, were, there was a time where I couldn't think of anything I'd rather do than what I do now so you know, I'm, I'm, I really am incredibly lucky I, I really am you know I'm, I, I, I know I'm I'm fortunate and I, I don't take it for granted by any stretch of the imagination
0: by any stretch of the imagination but still working hard, and that's the other thing, isn't it? The are not taking it for granted. Is still getting up and doing the hours right.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, there's no question about that. But as I say, you know, if you don't, if you enjoy doing it, it doesn't seem like a chore. It doesn't seem like, sure. you know, I'm, I'm. I mean, there's times where I kind of think, oh, it's a weekend. I, you know, I can't really work this weekend. That's sort of slightly frustrating because I'm in the kind of in the rhythm, oh, okay. and then, you know, and I want to get back that's to great. it. So you know, it's um, it's funny.
0: And what about the podcast? So uh, we have ways of making you talk. Was that a surprise success? Because it seems to have been a very successful.
1: Yeah, I don't I just I, I mean we went into it with our eyes wide open, had absolutely no idea how it was going to pan out or who might might come. But yeah, no, it has been a, a very pleasant surprise. And I think what's what's also interesting is is you kind of you know, people seem to get a lot out of it and and you know, they, they feel part of a kind of a fellowship, clearly. I mean, you know, we have these mm. patron members now, so there's a sort of, you know, you pay a bit of money, you get a whole load of extra stuff. And for them it's it's kind of you're you're sort of bringing people together, and and I like the idea that we've we've got in some quite serious academics from time to time, and you know most people wouldn't read a kind of you know most sort of people that are kind of looking for a kind of sort of general kind of narrative history wouldn't be reading academic works, but by getting them on the show, we're able to kind of I don't know kind of sort of break down what is what it is they're writing about in their very academic heavy going book, and we're able to regurgitate that in in a kind of very easy to follow form. Um, so that then opens that opens people's eyes to kind of more academic thinking rather than just sort of, you know, regurgitating stuff that they've seen on telly, which is kind of probably a bit kind of simplistic and so on. So opening people's eyes to a kind of wider understanding of the Second World War, I think is, you know, that's incredibly satisfying and, and you know, rewarding.
0: And there's been that really beautiful kind of thing come out of it where people are sharing with you. I mean, the listeners are sharing with you their stories about relatives and yeah, uh, and again, all stories great. that and,
1: haven't been told. Absolutely, and and you're getting, you know, you get all sorts of interesting things and uh, and stuff that I didn't know, you know, and that's um um, you know, that's really really fascinating and and, and interesting, and you know, I've learned an awful lot doing. We have ways, I mean, an, an awful lot, and. And people ask you questions, and you think, God, I don't know the answer to that. And so you go off and research uh-huh. that a little bit, and and it doesn't take a huge lot of work. But but that then, because you now know what they've asked you, that actually feeds into something else you are doing, whether it be Ron Sicily or something else, which then leads you down another little sort of cul-de-sac or even a um, a main thoroughfare. So that's also really interesting so the whole thing's really rewarding i suppose you know i suppose what i see now is is that you know you at the center of the wagon wheel i've got my you know me and and my kind of interest in the second world war and out of that i've got all these different rather than wagon wheel it's more like a sort of um pieces of a of, of a trivial pursuit pie you mm-hmm. know of, of different information but they're all feeding into that central kind of hub you know so you've got the podcast you've got tv you've got kind of you know this you've got that you've got novels you've got non-fiction. Um, and it's all feeding into one thing, and I think that's that that's incredibly interesting.
0: Fantastic. James, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. If people want to keep up with the projects that you're working on, what's the best way of doing that?
1: Well, I mean, I've, I do have a website, which is griffonmerlin.com,
0: um, but, you know, if you kind of Google me, you'll, you'll you'll see it. You're pretty keen on Twitter, I think, as well, aren't you? Yeah, I do Twitter, awesome.
1: at James1940. Yeah, I do a little bit of Twitter um occasionally okay. on facebook when i remember occasionally on instagram when i remember but but yeah twitter's the main one um but yeah i mean you know i'm always very keen to hear from people so um you know if anyone wants to get in
0: touch and that is one of the areas where twitter still seems fairly healthy you know people can talk about history stuff without getting too I yeah know.
1: people can get a bit narky, but you know i mean i'm I, you know I, I have an absolute golden rule of never being rude to anyone and, and, and intentionally certainly um and, and never swearing on on social media and and you know i i think i get a pretty
0: good press on the whole great james thank you so much thank you thanks for having me on thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that join us next time on the robert lane creative careers podcast until then please subscribe rate and review and have a look at robert to see the other projects i'm working on thank you goodbye